Michael, welcome back to Gnostic Media's podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again. How are you today? I'm doing very well, and thanks for inviting me for a second go-round. Well, I've got to tell you, your show last week was extremely popular and is still extremely popular, and um, I've been surprised at the amount of, of feedback and positive emails and thank yous that I've received over the last uh, week since we put that out, and I feel that this is an extremely important area to discuss uh, the subject and predicate and, and all of this good uh, grammar stuff, so I wanted to have you back on to discuss that. Oh, yeah, we're glad to do so. Well, where would you like to start out? Well, we can kind of start with a sort of a basic setup. You know, the all of us are probably familiar with the notion of subject and predicate from, from you know, English class. You know, we learn that the subject is what you're talking about and the predicate is the quality or property you're assigning to it. So if someone says, you know, the pants are on the ground, the subject is pants, because as you're talking about, and the predicate or quality is being, in fact, on the ground. But, of course, when we learn that, you know, in high school or, you know, before then, you know, they usually don't go into the, the sort of the, the metaphysics of it, the history of it, and what sort of implications it has, uh, you know, philosophically, and also some of the interesting background for it. So what I thought I'd do is kind of present a very incomplete look at subjects and predicates, looking at the beginnings of it, you know, sort of where it got rolling in philosophy, then looking at the medieval time period, and then moving into the, a bit into the, the, you know, the modern era, and then looking a bit at how it affects, um, you know, the notion of people, you know, the, the subject of, of us, you know, being people, and how that works sort of philosophically and logically. All right, would you like to start off with Socrates and Plato? Sure, we'll begin with the, the beginning. Although there were philosophers before Socrates, which were originally named by, you know, the philosophers as the pre-Socratics, uh, Socrates, of course, was born in 470 BC. We know exactly when he died, 399 BC, because, you know, he drank that hemlock and, and died. His student Plato was born around 428 or 427 BC and died around 348 or 347 BC, and is, of course, uh, still dead today. Now, Plato really got things going with his discussion of the metaphysics of what are known as the forms or the ideas. And when I you know, talk about the forms to my students, they often see them as pretty weird things, most likely because they are pretty weird things. So these forms are supposed to be real, objective, independent, unchanging, and eternal. And, you know, that makes some kind of sense. But what makes them sort of exceptionally weird is they're supposed to exist not in space or time, but in a place, or really not a place, that philosophers call the Platonic heaven. And so this leads to all sorts of problems about how, you know, these forms like justice or beauty interact with the, the world. Now, for Plato, reality comes in degrees. Uh, you know, normally in life we think of things being real or, you know, not real, fake or, or you know, not even existing at all. But for Plato... Reality comes in degrees. So, for example, if you take something that is beautiful, you know, there are various beautiful things. You know, somebody might, if someone's like a supermodel, they'd be really beautiful. If someone's, you know, not a supermodel, less so. Now, getting back to like the whole subject predicate thing, for Plato, the subject would be the particular thing. Let's say Angelina Jolie. And the uh, predicate would be typically 
a form. So if you say Angelina Jolie is beautiful, the subject would be Angelina Jolie, and the predicate would be beautiful. And for Plato, this would involve some sort of weird metaphysical relation between Angelina Jolie and the very form of beauty. So what these forms do is they group individuals, particulars, you know, subjects, sometimes referred to as tokens, into types. So for example, all beautiful people have in common the quality of beauty, and according to Plato, that's grouped by their forms. So for him, roughly put, the subjects would be the particular things, and the predicates would be these strange metaphysical universals. And then after uh, Plato, of course, uh, comes his student Aristotle um, from 384 to 322. And Aristotle is probably best known for bringing the forms down to earth. This is a famous painting called The Society of Athens, which shows Plato pointing upwards and, you know, and Aristotle pointing downwards. Now, Aristotle was probably the philosopher who really got the whole subject predicate thing really going. I mean, because, you know, Plato, uh, you know, speaking through Socrates, talked about the forms. But in Aristotle, you really start getting the metaphysics of subject predicate, also the language, thought, and reality uh, being worked into there as well. So, beginning with his discussion of, of knowledge, he claims that knowledge begins with the study of particular things. And, as I mentioned previously, unlike Plato, he brings the properties down to earth. So Plato's forms were supposed to be in this mysterious Platonic heaven, you know, outside of space, outside of time. But for Aristotle, the properties are here, on earth. So, uh, as he said, musicalness cannot exist unless there is someone who is musical, and that a doctor does not to attempt the cure of the form of man, but particular men. Now, Aristotle also brought up the notion of essence, which is, well, basically the idea is this. The essence of something is what it is to be that thing, and without that essence, a thing is not that. Now, probably, uh, probably the easiest way to sort of illustrate this would be something like a triangle. If you get a triangle, one essential quality is it has as having three sides. So if you take a triangle and you take away one of the sides, what do you got? Well, something that's not a triangle anymore. So the essential things are the things that you got to have, and if you don't have them, you're not that thing anymore. Now, there are also, in addition to the essential qualities, there are also the accidental qualities. Not in the sense that you're you know, driving along and you, you know, run into somebody, you get an accidental quality of like a you know, big expensive dent in your car, but the qualities that something could have or could lose and still remain what it is. So if you have a triangle, you know, you could draw a blue triangle, then you could, like, paint it yellow. And, of course, it's still a triangle, whether it's blue or yellow. So the, you take a, the, the accident is the color blue or yellow or, or something like that, or, or the size, possibly, of the triangle? Yeah, because if, if you have a, you know, if you're doing, a, creating a triangle, you know, say on, in, you know, Adobe Illustrator, and you make it small and blue, but then you decide they would like a big yellow triangle, for some reason, or, you know, a big pink triangle, then you could, if you change it, it's still a triangle, whether it's blue, pink, or yellow, big or small, um, you know, fat or tall. So all, but of, would, all of those extra things are accidental, so they're not... Right, they're not essential to the thing. Right. So, so for Aristotle, if you have a particular subject, you know, like triangle, it'll have predicates that are essential to it, that there are things that, if you don't have that, 
you're not that thing. And if you and there are other qualities that are accidents. So if you don't have them or have them, they're not critical to being that. So like for example, like with a person, if you get a haircut, you're still the same person. And even though people say, you know, clothes make the man, if you change your clothes, you're presumably still the same person. But if you, say, added horns and hooves and uh, omnivore teeth and things like that, then you wouldn't be a man anymore. You might be something else like a cow or an elk or something like that. Yeah, which does, you know, so, you know, philosophers and, you know, other people have speculated about that. Like, what can you change about, say, a person and still have them be a person? Uh, you know, for example... I mean, this actually, we'll talk about, you know, people later on, but this has some interesting, uh, you know, scientific applications today, because people are talking about doing things like, you know, augmenting people with technology, or, you know, trying to copy, say, our memories into computers, or, you know, recreate us. What about, like, what uh, are... like genetically modifying us to withstand the pest, uh, pesticides they're putting in the GMO foods or something? Yeah, like, you know, yeah, to modify us, say, to survive in a you know, a, a world, you know, the world that we're making, you know, a world that's, you know, a world of more chemicals and so forth. And so the question might be, if we change ourselves that much, if we alter ourselves genetically, are we still human beings or are we now something else? Which is, you know, which is in addition to being sort of a metaphysical question, it's also an important moral question. You know, when people are concerned about tampering with, you know, with like nature, for example, they're raising this kind of question. What sort of changes or damage can we do to, to nature before we end up, you know, changing to something else, you know, altering, altering things in ways that not only, you know, per, perhaps harm them, but actually destroy what they, what they are. And so it's an inter, you know, it's an interesting question, both sort of metaphysically, but also ethically. Now, Aristotle was also interested in one of the things that, you know, the many things that made him famous was talking about language, thought, and reality. And one thing that philosophers have debated since the time of, you know, Plato and Aristotle and stuff is, does our language, you know, match reality? And does our thought match reality? Now, Aristotle had a very straightforward answer. He said, language, you know, our speaking and our writing and our thought and reality have the same structure. And he believed that we have knowledge that matches the structure of the world. And his reasoning is pretty straightforward. We couldn't know things about the world unless we had a similarity between mind and nature. And if, you know, if they were totally different, we wouldn't be able to grasp you know, or comprehend what was going on. Also, we couldn't talk about the world, at least as he sees it, without a similarity between our language and the world. And he claims, uh, to quote him, that language divides the beast of reality along its joints. In other words, the way we talk about the world, in terms of subjects and predicates, actually, we're not just, you know, making stuff up, our language actually matches reality. And similarly, our language matches thoughts. So his view, his assumption, was the way we talk and the way we think and reality all the same subject. So he you know, argues or assumes that language is subject predicate, uh, logic is subject predicate, and reality is also subject predicate. So who knew that the, you know, the high school English teachers who told us about how important it was to learn this stuff, how right they apparently were. Not that I paid, sadly, I didn't pay much attention back then. So it's kind of ironic that I'm, I'm doing this now. <laughs> well, it, maybe, they, maybe they didn't teach you the proper tools like the Trivium to properly contextualize everything so that you could understand it and pay attention. 
No, I think the fault was all mine because when I was should have been paying attention to English class, I was like, um, you know, thinking about Dungeons and Dragons or the, or, you know, the girl, you know, two seats up or something. So the blame is totally mine, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm honest enough to admit that. All right. So uh, are we? Looks like we're at Thomas Aquinas now. Oh, I still have a little bit left of Aristotle. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that's all right. Um, now, getting back to the subject predicate stuff. One good question is, so what is this, we've looked at like what the, the predicates are, you know, for Plato, it's the forms, for Aristotle, it's, you know, the properties that are, you know, these forms brought to earth. So what about the, su- what about the subject? Well, Aristotle introduces this notion of substance, and it's an individual thing, uh, according, you know, to quote him from the, his work, The Categories, they are the entities which underlie everything else and everything else is either predicated of them or present in them. So the substance is the subject. So for Aristotle, what underlies our language and thought and what makes up reality is substance. So I'm a substance, you're a substance. Sub-substances are controlled substances or legal substances, but everything would be a substance. You, me, laptops, kiwis, both the fruit and the bird, Barack Obama, um, you know, Joe wouldn't, Biden. Wouldn't you like to be a substance too? It's too. Exactly. <laughs> but everything would be a substance. Uh, to quote Aristotle, he says, they are the entities which underlie everything else, and everything else is either predicated of them or present in them. So these substance stuff are the subjects. And what uh, is predicated of them are all of the other categories. So all predicates are predicated of subjects. Now, for Aristotle... A substance can exist apart from particular properties. So, for example, talking about the triangle we spoke about earlier, a triangle could exist, you know, without being yellow or brown or blue or whatever. But one interesting thing that Aristotle brought up was that properties can't exist apart from a substance. For example, if you're walking around, you may see like a blue triangle or a blue car, but you'll never just see blue by itself. You might see, again, like a blue car or blue's clues or someone singing the blues, but you'll never just see blueness, or you'll never see square. And so the idea was they had the stuff, the substance, that was a subject of all these predicates. Now from this, Aristotle developed what's known as categorical logic, which is still around to this day. If you uh, happen you know, to read a bit about categorical logic, or take a logic or critical thinking class, that's the one that is generally presented with all those, you know, the circles. And if you ever heard of like Venn diagrams or Euler diagrams, they deal with that. And his categorical logic basically is a subject predicate logic with only four sentences. And you only have four possibilities. Either all S subjects are P, like all cats are mammals, or no S or P, for example, no squid are mammals. And the third possibility is some S are P, for example, some cats are gray things. And the final possibility is some S are not P. For example, some cats are not happy things. And so this notion of subject predicate was developed by Aristotle into this categorical logic that something, a particular subject, has or doesn't have a particular property. And this was developed over the years into more and more complex forms of logic, which is later known as, uh, sometimes referred to as a predicate calculus or predicate logic, which was highly developed in the you know, 19th and 20th century and it's still, still being developed today. So that brings us to the end of looking at, you know, the really, really old dead guys, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And now we'll move on to a guy who's still dead, but hasn't been dead quite as long, our good friend Thomas Aquinas. 
Now, uh, Aquinas was born around 1224 or 1225 and died in 1274. And he uh, built a lot of his philosophy from the works of Aristotle. In fact, he's often regarded as someone who uh, Christianized Aristotle. And he developed Aristotle's theory of ethics into a Christian-based ethics. And, of course, also developed a lot of his metaphysics in the same way. Now, for Aquinas, he believed in universals. That is to say, you know, these properties, these predicates that can apply to all things. Now, for Aquinas, the universals exist in God's mind as ideas. And so what God does, the way he sort of views the creation of the world, is that God has these ideas of all these universals in his mind, and then he creates the world, and then the universals exist as a form of individual substances. And what we, what we can do, so his basic picture is, is that God has the ideas in his mind of the universals, creates the world based on them, kind of like an architect or engineer building something based on plans, and then we can go and look at this world, and then we can see, you know, sort of abstract out, what these universals are. So on Aquinas' view, God creates the world based on this, this so to speak, this pattern, and then we can see the pattern in the things and sort of reconstruct that idea. Now, like Aristotle, he builds on the notion of individuals, and he claims, just like Aristotle, that the world we live in consists entirely of individual substances. And he claims that every particular thing, say you or me or uh, Joe Biden, has a substantial form that's a universal component of the particular which is shared by all of that kind. So, for example, all people have you know, the quality that is common to all people. And each particular is also composed of matter. So we get a subject, you know, the substance, having uh, once more all these qualities. So what is this stuff, this substance? Well, Aquinas was aware of this problem known as a problem of continuity through change. And here's the problem. If something changes, something has to stay the same. Because if there's a total change, it would not be really change, but destruction. So something of the original has to remain. So, if there is this continuity through change, there must be a fundamental type of something that persists through the change of qualities. I mean, to use uh, sort of a practical example, you know, as we get, uh, you know, older and go through life, we change. You know, you get like a different haircut, you put on weight or lose weight, but you still think you're the same person. So the question is, oh, even though all that stuff changes, what remains? Now, for Aristotle, what, or rather Aquinas, what remains is something he borrowed from Aristotle, namely the notion of what's called prime matter. Now, prime matter, for both Aristotle and Aquinas, has no form and no qualities of its own. It has pure potentiality, which means it can take on any form. You can think of it kind of like a super silly putty or super clay. It can become anything, but it in and of itself has no, at least in his view, has no qualities whatsoever. Now, this is known in, in contemporary philosophy as a bare particular, because it's bare, it's got no qualities, and it's also a particular, it's an individual thing. Now, this thing has been seen as pretty mysterious, because the way you sort of describe it is, you know, imagine something. Let's take, for example, a, uh, a cup. Suppose you get a cup that's blue, and it's a cup, and it's full of water. Now, for Aquinas and Aristotle, in theory, you could take away the blue, take away the, the shape of the cup, take away its mass, its volume, and so forth. And what you're left with 
is this prime matter? But intuitively, if you take away all those qualities, it would seem you're left with absolutely nothing. And so later philosophers said exactly that. If you take away all the qualities, it would seem you would have nothing whatsoever there. Now, a final problem I'll look at for Aquinas was known as the problem of individuation. The problem basically is this. If you have, you know, predicates, you can have two individuals that have identical predicates or qualities. And so the question is, how do you have two things that have identical qualities? How are they actually two distinct things? So, for example, if you have two triangles that are the same size, shape, and color, what makes them two triangles? And what Aquinas puts forth is the notion of this prime matter stuff. It fixes this problem, too. If you have two different things, say triangles or cups, with all the same qualities, they're different because they're different matter. So you get the prime matter that's a subject, this mysterious propertyless prime matter, and then you have the qualities that make things what they are, at least for, for Aquinas. And that was you know, a rough uh, view of his view of subject and predicate. So you're, the subject is this mysterious prime matter, and the predicates are these universals. And so that's how, at least for Aquinas, reality works. Well, let's, let me ask you about Thomas Aquinas. Now, you, you mentioned in, in his view that these were the universals. Um, it basically comes down to what would be the word definitions, correct? What, uh, how do we define a person? How do we define a triangle? How do we define a tree or a, or a fish or whatever it may be? And then everything is predicated on that. Yes. Yeah. So the way we, way we define things, because, you know, if you take away all the qualities of something, in a way, everything is the same. Namely, everything is this prime matter that has no qualities whatsoever. And so in order to sort out the difference between, say, a, you know, a fish and a laptop and, you know, a bird or, you know, uh, a roast beef sandwich, that's the, you know, the predicates, basically figuring out what, what are the qualities that make the thing what it is. And, you know, uh, for, you know, for Aristotle, you know, Aquinas built his theory off Aristotle. It's those categories and those qualities that define what things, things are. What's the problem of universals, uh, medieval and contemporary? Uh, during the, interestingly enough, during the medieval era, because I guess people didn't have much to do but die of the plague and fight wars and so forth, there's a lot of interesting speculation about metaphysics. Uh, specifically about universals. And the general problem is this. A universal is a quality or property that many things can have. It's something we can predicate of many things. For example, being blue or being human can be predicated of all kinds of things. You can have all kinds of blue things, and you can have all kinds of humans, and you can have blue men, you know, like the blue man group. And so you can have many uh, things having the same quality. So one issue here is, how is that possible? How can many things have these same qualities? And there's also the question of how it is for all these different individuals to be the same type. What is it that makes all people people? What is it that makes all glasses glasses? What is it that makes all things that are just just? Or, for example, if you get six you know, green marbles, what makes them all green? It makes them all marbles. Now, one answer given by, by philosophers is that there are universals, that there are these metaphysical properties that make things what they are. 
and this this debate between about universals and properties, as often happens, you know, in, in philosophy and politics, split into two camps. Namely, if you want to, I mean, there's there's actually more camps, but we'll uh, keep it simple with two. One is known as the realist camp, and the other is known as the camp of nominalists or those who accept nominalism. Now, the realists in this case are not realist in sort of the political sense, so they you know see what has to be done pragmatically and do it. The realist in the very literal sense that they believe that these things are real. So if you're a realist about universals, you believe that universals are real and exist in the world. Now, in the medieval time, there are basically three motivations to believe this stuff. The first was an epistemic motivation. And epistemology comes from you know the Greek episteme, knowledge, um, you know, ology, study of. So it's basically a motivation about how we know stuff. And as we saw when we talked about Aristotle, he believed that logic and language need to match reality, match the world. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to think about it or talk about it. And so one reason to think that universals are real is that if we talk about like blue or man or chair or justice, then we're talking about real things. Now, a second motivation, interestingly enough or boringly enough, is the problem of original sin. In, you know, in, in Christian thought, um, you know, it's typically accepted that there is original sin, that somehow Adam and Eve, you know, did the apple thing, and that somehow, you know, we're all tainted with that sin. And a good question is, how does that work? Because, for example, if my grandfather, say, was a, my great-grandfather was, say, a bootlegger, that doesn't mean that I'm a bootlegger. Or if, you know, my great-grandfather committed a crime, that doesn't make me guilty of that crime. So how does this, that sin get passed along? Well, the interesting notion that they put forth was that there's a universal quality of being human, and when sin occurred, somehow that got you know, tainted with sin. So whenever you're human, you get this, the sin along with that. So to use kind of a bad analogy, if you think of the universals like molds for stamping out you know, things, if the mold is like cracked, anything you make from that mold will be cracked as well. The third motivation was, was also theological, namely the problem of the Trinity. You know, if you accept the notion that there's a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, one obvious problem is this. Christianity is supposed to be monotheistic, you know, one God. But then you get the Father, you get the Son, the Holy Ghost. That seems to be three. So how do you have the Trinity? Let's not forget to mention the devil and all the angels and stuff, right? Oh, yeah, that creates another problem, too, once you bring the, you know, the devil in, because he's always, he's always causing trouble. Kind of his, his business. Um, yeah, so how do, you, how do you work all that out? Well, what they came up with was this idea that you have the universal you know, quality, essentially, like that God has. And so you have three things, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But they're really one thing, because they really just have that, you know, the quality of the, the property of being God. And so you've got three different manifestations of one thing. Now, of course, that's still seen as pretty mysterious. How do you have three things be one also being three? But I suppose that's where faith really comes into play. Or being bad at math, perhaps. Now, uh, switching up to the, moving up to about the 20th and 21st century, uh, one uh, a philosopher who, probably the best-known sort of contemporary philosopher who worked with universals, is a fellow named David Armstrong. And I happened to meet him once years ago. But he believes in what are known as instantiated universals. And basically what he does is, it's similar to Aristotle. He believed that 
the universals, you know, like blue, green, red, justice, and so forth, are not in a platonic heaven, they're here. And what he believed, or believes, is that they can exist in multiple places at the same time. So, for example, if you get six green marbles, the very same green, identical green, is existing in six places at once. Now, when thinking about that, that seems kind of odd. For example, if I claim that I'm here in Tallahassee, Florida, entirely, and I claim that I'm also in Bangor, Maine, entirely, and then I'm, you know, somewhere else entirely at the same time, that seems, you know, impossible. I, you know, I can't do that. And so one question is, is how does that happen? And so probably the main criticism of this view is that it just seems weird to have these things in all these different places. But for Armstrong, you know, the predicate, when you're talking about the predicate of a, of a claim, those would be these universals. So if you say, you know, that a triangle is blue, the universal would be blue, and the subject would be the triangle. Now, other thinkers regard that multiple location stuff as completely crazy. And these philosophers, who still want to be realist, what they take up is what's called uh, trope theory, which is kind of an unfortunate choice, because the term tropism is used in science, but it's also used in, um, I believe, literature as well. But it's kind of the term we get stuck with. Probably the best-known trope theorist is a fellow named Keith Campbell, and it's also a, a view that I subscribe to. I did, did my dissertation on it some years ago. And if you're a trope theorist, you'd believe that there are real properties. You know, green is real, justice is real, etc. But the way they differ from the, the universal theorist is that the qualities are not identical in each different location. But what they do is they resemble each other. So if you have six green marbles for the trope theorist, there would be six different greens, but they would exactly resemble each other. And they would be all green because they resemble one another, kind of like with a family. All members of a family are identical, but you recognize that they resemble each other. Now, naturally, people like David Armstrong, who believe in universals, think that this resem exact resemblance is ridiculous. Just like the people who are trope theorists think that, you know, the multiplication is ridiculous. Now, for the people who think that all this is ridiculous we have a, um, an option for them, too. It's what's known as nominalism. And it comes from the, the Latin word nomina, meaning names. And it's the view that universals are merely names. So in a way, literally, when we predicate something, it literally is a predicate. You're just naming it. So if you say that, you know, uh, you know Isis is a dog, you're just predicating of Isis that she's a dog. It's, there's no metaphysical reality there. There's just the name of the thing. Now, one of the best-known nominalists was a fellow named uh, Rosellen. He was born uh, around 1050, died around 1120, and he said there's nothing outside the mind that's not a particular, and that universals have no metaphysical existence. They are a mere, in a, a clever Latin phrase, a mere flatus vocis, a mere vocal wind. He was later, um, because he believed that this led to uh, the denial of the Trinity, he was later, you know, charged with heresy and so forth, so that came to a kind of a bad ending. But during the Middle Ages, and then, you know, today, there are, you know, a considerable number of philosophers who believe that these universals that underlie the predicates are real, and then, of course, there are those who believe they're just words. And the debate still keeps on going today. So there's still contemporary debate about when we use phrases like, you know, the, the cat is, um, you know, on the mat, or the cup is blue, 
whether we're referring to something metaphysically real or something merely language. And this has some interesting implications in social and political thought and ethics as well. For example, you know, the, the election of Obama, uh, you know, once again got us interested in discussions of race. And so when people say things like someone is white or someone is black or Asian or Hispanic, it raises the question, are we talking about real qualities or are those merely social designations? So if you say Obama is black, is that referring to a metaphysical blackness about him or is it referring to just a name we're, we're saying? And this, of course, can have important implications philosophically as well as socially, politically, and morally. Necessity and contingency. Uh, one sort of interesting uh, bit, jumping around, you know, this is once again the, the very incomplete look at subjects and predicates, uh, leaping over to necessity and contingency. We'll be looking at this in the context of uh, a dead guy named Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, born around 1646, died in 1716. He's a pretty interesting fellow. He uh, developed the notion of binary uh, logic, binary mathematics, that you could represent all numbers and zeros and ones. And so in a way, you know, our ability to conduct this interview today depends on Leibniz because he gave us, you know, binary logic, which became the foundation for, you know, our technology, you know, our computers, computers and, and so forth. So whatever my students ask, you know, what has philosophy done? I say, well, without philosophy, you wouldn't have that, you know, that iPod to be able to, you know, the, uh, the iPhone to text during class when you should be paying attention. <laughs> um, so it makes so much possible. Now, when you're talking about subject and predicate, earlier we talked about, you know, talking about Aristotle and essences. And so there's one, one question that comes up that's kind of interesting is the qualities that we have, what sort of ones can we lose or change and still be who we are? Or what ones, if we were to lose those, would we cease to be, you know, what we are? Like, for example, we talked a bit about, you know, genetically modifying people. At what point would they cease to be people? And there's also the question about, which is an interesting question, could we be any different from who we are? You know, do we have freedom? And so there's the question of choice and chance. You know, the, the people that we are, for example, is that something that we can choose? Or is our, you know, our life sort of preset, preordained, or determined? And so a lot, um, a lot of interesting stuff, you know, the matter of freedom and also the matter of chance. Can th do things just happen randomly or are things just preset? And interestingly enough, or boringly enough, the notion of subject and predicate actually involves that whole idea about whether we're free or determined. Now, Leibniz uh, was very interested in logic, uh, not surprisingly, and he talked about two types of truths. There are necessary truths and contingent truths. Now, some truths are truths of reason, and they're based on logical laws, and they got to be true. For example, take the law of uh, contradiction. If you have, you know, the claim, you know, P, say that uh, I'm in Tallahassee, and the claim not P, I'm not in Tallahassee, um, and, you, and you put those together and say, I'm in Tallahassee and not in Tallahassee, that'd be a contradiction, and it's always false. Whereas a tautology would be a claim that's always true. And so truths of reason are always true. They can never be false. Now, the other facts, what he calls truths of fact, are contingent. They're simply true because of how things happen to be. So, for example, the, the fact that I'm in Tallahassee is contingent because I could go somewhere else. Um, you know, I could move around and so forth. And Or the, the fact that 
you know, particular person is, say, president, that Obama is president, would be contingent because we can imagine that he would have, you know, that he lost the election. Now, this is where things for Leibniz um, get a little unusual, a bit unusual. He makes the claim that always, at every true or affirmative proposition, whether necessary or contingent, universal or particular, the notion of the predicate is in some way included in that of the subject. In other words, he brings up the notion that the subject of any claim, the predicate is somehow in there, whatever that means. Now, in the case of like a, a simple thing like a triangle, if we say that a triangle has three sides, we can kind of see that, because when you think of a triangle, that subject always includes having three sides. So he claims that subject contains the predicate. Now, in a way, this takes us back to our good dead friend Aristotle, because he seems to be an essentialist, namely that an individual subject contains all its properties in such a way that changing the properties change the identity. So it would seem, you know, given his view, if anything about you changes, then you're not you anymore, which seems kind of, kind of weird. So, for example, if you, um, you know, get a haircut or like you, you know, cut your finger, you know, during the course of this interview, like moving, say, your mouse and you slipped and, you know, stabbed your finger, <laughs> uh, given that view, you'd be like, you wouldn't be you anymore. I'd be talking to someone, someone new, someone else. But saying cutting my finger would change who I am, where do we draw the line? Because wouldn't I still be me even with a cut finger? Or what makes me not me with a cut finger? Oh, that's a good good question. You know, on the, on the face of it, it, I mean, that seems, you know, absurd. Because if you like, you know, if you poke your finger, then you're not you anymore. I mean, if you try to like say, well, I don't owe taxes now, you know, when you, when, you know, the tax day comes and says, well, it wasn't me that earned them. Because look, I, I cut my finger and I'm not, not me anymore. The IRS won't buy that argument. I've tried it, but it, it never works. Uh, they still expect that money. Now, the way the way Leibniz tries to get it tries to avoid you know that kind of problem is this: it's not um, you know if you change the properties, then the identity changes. But this is what he claims: he claims that even the so-called contingent truths, things that supposedly could be different, they're necessary. In other words, you have all the properties you are. You, you have, and if they were changed, you wouldn't be you, but all those changes are kind of built in. Uh, to be a little little clear about this, what he claims is that, you know, given that you exist, and on his view, you, you wouldn't have to, all your qualities exist necessarily. In other words, when, uh, you know, since Leibniz believed in God, when God, you know, created you, all the predicates you're going to have are already preset. So, for example, when you, suppose you, you know, you poke your finger, that is, so to speak, is already in your subject. So if you were to poke your finger, uh, you know, at 12.50, you know, 3 p.m., you know, Eastern Standard Time on uh, January 29th, that's already sort of built in there, sort of pre-scripted. And so it's part of you, but it doesn't change you because it's already part of you. And so it has this sort of weird contingent truth necessity thing, namely that if you do exist, then you couldn't be any different. So everything you do, you have to do, and could could not do any other way, but you didn't have to exist. So it's basically like, if God creates you, then you're going to be exactly the way you had to be. There's no change possible. And But if God didn't create you, then you wouldn't be, or so he claims. And that's you know some kind of weird stuff, but um, this does raise the obvious question, because, for example, if all our future predicates are part of us, 
wouldn't that mean that you could tell the future? You know, if you could somehow read the predicates uh, attached to someone's subject, you could see the future. In a way, the answer would be kind of yeah. Because for Leibniz, the concept of the subject contains all those properties and predicates. So, uh, for example, in your case, a full understanding of you, a full list of all your predicates, would include everything you've ever been, everything you've ever done, and everything you're going to be. Your entire past, present, and future would be laid out in those predicates. It would all, it would all be there, if only we could you know, get access to that. So what you're having for breakfast tomorrow is there. Um, you know, when you win the lottery, you know, five days from now, that'll be in there. All that stuff will be in there. Cool, thanks. Oh, glad to help. <laughs> I, uh, although I shouldn't have said that. I've, I've revealed too much. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I'll be looking forward to that. So, uh, all right, what? Let's go. Let's talk about John Locke and what is his importance regarding the subject, the subjects, predicates, and people. Okay. Um, now, Locke was a English uh, philosopher, born around 1632, died in 1704. He's probably best known for his works in political philosophy. You know, everyone's probably heard the phrase, you know, the rights to life, uh, liberty, and in his case, not pursuit of happiness, but property. And he developed a lot of those, those notions. And he had a huge impact uh, politically and, and philosophically on, you know, the Western democracies, democracies, especially the United States. But also he did a lot of work in metaphysics. And he, uh, after reading Descartes, he developed further this idea of substance. Our good friend, uh, dead friend, Rene Descartes, of course, is famous for the "I think, you know, I am," and his view that we're just that, that the mind is a substance. My friend's uh, argument for that, and what's funny is, I had a professor in school who wrote a book on Descartes, and I cracked a joke one day that <laughs> that uh, didn't go over well. But you know, my friend would argue, well, how about uh, I am, therefore I, I think, therefore I am, or what about I am, therefore I think, and. You know, and then you get into this whole paradoxical uh, issue of which came first, the the chicken or the bunny rabbit. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, that is. Uh, oh, it's kind of putting the what, what's the old joke? Uh, putting Descartes before the horse. That, and then <laughs> putting, <laughs> that's, <laughs> all right. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> now, uh, you know, he's continuing along with that notion of of substance. And he's, he's a reluctant user, user of substance. He really doesn't want to do it, but he just feels kind of compelled, I guess, because all the cool kids are, are doing it. So he says, using the standard argument, he accepts that qualities, you know, properties, predicates, can't exist without something to support them. In, in Latin, basically, it's sign, re, substante. And so the idea is, you know, what we saw earlier, is that you can't have properties and qualities just kind of drifting around on their own. You can't have like blue drifting by and square, you know, and just, you always find all this stuff together. We, you know, we encounter, you know, blue cups, but we don't encounter blue. We encounter, you know, um, red triangles, but we don't encounter red and triangularity just drifting around. And so he accepts reluctantly, very reluctantly, that there is this substance that is the subject that these predicates somehow attach to. And kind of jokingly, he, you can tell he's pretty reluctant about accepting these because he, he jokes and tells this story um, about an elephant. He says, suppose someone asks you what supports all these qualities. You know, if you take away the blue, you know, the mass and density from a cup, what are you left with? And he says, you know, doing this would be like the, the Indian who says the world was supported by a great elephant held up, you know, holding the world in its trunk. 
And of course, the obvious question is, okay, if the Earth is being held up by a big elephant, what's the elephant standing on? And the answer, of course, is obvious. It's a big turtle. I mean, what else would the elephant be standing on? And then the next question, of course, is, okay, if the elephant is holding the Earth and the elephant's standing on a, on a big turtle, what's the turtle standing on? Well, and the obvious answer Oh, go ahead. I was just going to add to that. That's funny that you should add that because I always hear these arguments of, uh, well, you know, there's all this UFO stuff out there. And and I, I saw something last week. I don't remember. It was some doc- documentary. Somebody was making some claims. And they made a, a wild jump that, well, God must be aliens. And... And and they came here in UFOs, and they genetically created us. And I said, okay, well, then where would they come from? Uh, it, where, what is the elephant standing on, the turtle? Where did the aliens come from? Who's their god? And, and you know, this question is always left unanswered in that sort of uh, UFO proposal. Yes, yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point, because if you're, if you're trying to say, you know, people say, well, we don't, you know, we were created by aliens. Um, you make an excellent point. You know, where did where did they come from? You know, what what was their their origin? And you know, figuring out like where everything came from, that's a pretty uh, pretty important problem. Maybe like just maybe, just slightly, <laughs> just slightly. You know, one of those those uh, those big things, <laughs> like like the blo- like a black hole or something. You know, possibly. And so maybe the uh, turtle is standing on top of like an alien. You know, it's a UFO holding it up. You know, Earth, elephant, uh, turtle, UFO, um, maybe something else under there. Um, who knows? But uh, you know, when asked, you know, what the uh, oh, I know, I know what's underneath the uh, the the turtle. It's a butterfly dreaming of the turtle under the elephant under the world, sitting on a branch in Africa. Oh, that's perfect. It's it's like it's like a perfect uh, circle there. The butter <laughs> and the butterfly is supporting itself in its dream. A, yeah, the, yeah, the butterflies in Africa. The the elephant is on the Africa's on the earth. The elephant, um, the, the earth is on top of the elephant, and the elephant's on the turtle, and the turtle's on the butterfly that's dreaming. It's like a perfect circle of butterfly dreaming. Yeah. Anyway, I think I think there's, there's probably like a a top uh, forty song pop song in there. Well, I, I was I was thinking of a whole book. Yeah, I think a book, a book or a movie. I think you know we get <laughs> we get canoe, get canoe Reeves in there. Get. Um, James Cameron to direct it, get some CGI. It'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we, a, we should call it. I hope you got an agent. You, you should be taking this down. Uh, or yeah, <laughs> or, or even a video game. What's up with that? There's got to be oh. some wild video game in there. But oh, it anyway, be, it be like, oh, but back, but back onto the. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, he's asked, you know, what is a tortoise standing on? And his reply is, of course, something he knows not what. And so, you know, Locke's point in this story is when you talk about the substance holding up all these qualities, we don't know what it is. It doesn't have any qualities of its own. It's this great mystery. So he accepts it kind of like he's, he's got to accept it, but he really, really doesn't want to. Now, the, the view of substance during this time was that there are two types of possible substances. This, uh, Descartes was the one that really got this, this going. But it's supposed to be a physical substance. You know, we think of it as, you know, matter, you know, physical objects. And it's also supposed to be a mental substance. And so you're supposed to have a dual reality, physical world with physical qualities, a mental world with mental properties. And Locke says, you know, that's, this is all very mysterious, um, but we kind of got to accept it. And so you've got basically, you know, the subject will always be your substance and your predicate will be your properties. And so there are two types of subjects, mental subjects, 
um, that are the minds and the physical subjects, which would be physical objects. Now, Locke is really doesn't like the substance stuff, so he ends up making people what he calls basically consciousness. And he defines, tries to define here, going back to the notion of what it is to be a person, a person, which is a pretty important, you know, one of the most important, you know, subjects we've got, because it has all kinds of not just philosophical implications, but moral and political ones as well. I mean, for example, um, very practical issues. If you take, you know, uh, mercy killing or euthanasia, one question there is, if you have, say, a human body that's in a vegetative state, is that still a person? Or is it just a you know physical shell where the person is long gone? Because if it's not a person and you pull the life support, you're not killing a person. That that's not murder. That's just letting a physical shell just sort of fail. But if the person's still in there and you pull the plug, then that would be would seem to be murder. Uh, similarly, people often when they debate about abortion, uh, the issue of whether that is an entity is a person or not uh, becomes a matter of great concern because killing people is potentially murder. Whereas killing things that aren't people, it could still be wrong, but it would not seem to be as bad. So one thing that Locke tried to do, like many philosophers have tried to do, is give us a definition of what it is to be a person. And Locke basically gave, you know, a definition of four parts. To be a person, you got to be a thinking, intelligent being, which is what separates us from, like, you know, rocks and dirt and stuff. It has to have reason and reflection. And one critical thing is... It can consider itself as itself the same thinking thing in different times and places. And for Locke, it does this by consciousness. Now, interestingly, psychologists have developed a, a practical test that they, they try to use to see whether a being has reflection or not. And it's the mirror test. Basically, all you need is a mirror and like a marker. So you, like, you mark you know, uh, something, and if it recognizes itself in the mirror, that's considered a mark of self-awareness. You know, and people can do that. And apparently some elephants can, um, supposedly some parrots can too, but most animals don't. But it's a very important question. What is it to be a person and how do you tell? And for Locke, it's the consciousness because it goes along with thinking. And for him, it's literally memory. So whatever you remember, that was you. Whatever you don't remember, that wasn't you. So if you forget something, then it wasn't you. But the IRS doesn't buy that either as an excuse for not paying taxes, but <laughs> um, that's his definition. So for him, the subject is this consciousness, and the predicates are all the qualities there. So that would be a person for Locke. David Hume. Ah, good old David Hume. Hume was also a British empiricist. He was born in 1711. Uh, he died in 1776, and he had met and spoke with a lot of really famous people during that time, including our own Benjamin Franklin, wrote to him about electricity and so forth. Now, Hume was also a British empiricist, which means that he believed that whatever you you know has to go through the senses. Now, he was critical, um, basically, whatever he did, a lot of the stuff he did was being critical of philosophers that came before him to show that they really weren't consistent in their empiricism. So in the case of Locke, he says in, in Descartes, Hume basically says, well, let's see if we can find the person. Let's see if we can find that subject. And he goes and basically does an empirical test. He closes his eyes, looks into his mind with his mind's eye, and sees what he can see. And he claims that all he can see are perceptions. You know, he feels something, he hears something, tastes something. And so looking around, if we can only know what we can perceive, and all he perceives are perceptions, that's all we've got. There is no substance 
There is no, you know, this mysterious prime matter. There's just a bundle of perceptions. And so for Hume, what we are as people is bundles of perception. And there's no single underlying unity. There's no soul. There's no matter. There's just, it's to use the analogy I always use for my, my students, which uh, I'm not sure how good it is, but basically if you think of the mind as a, as a you know, a projection from a, like a DVD, you with a projector projecting, uh, and, you know, a movie onto the wall. If you take away the wall, the DVD player, the DVD, the projector, and you leave behind the movie, that's what we are. And the students, of course, say, well, how is that possible? I'm like, well, you know, just, just imagine that. Imagine the movie with nothing projecting it onto nothing. And so for Hume, that's what, what we are. Now, interestingly enough, or boringly enough, at the end, he, after going through all this argumentation about personal identity, he comes to sort of a, in a way, kind of a full circle on the whole grammatical subject predicate thing, because he says, you know, we spent all these centuries working on all this metaphysics, and he says that all the questions about personal identity, about who and what we are, cannot be decided. And he says, we have to regard them as grammatical rather than philosophical. And so he says, all disputes concerning identity are merely verbal. And so basically, in a way, he seems to be saying that when we talk about people, you know, the subject there, um, the way we figure out, you know, if you're still you or I'm still me is based on grammar, which is merely a verbal dispute. So we get rid of the metaphysics and we're left purely with language. And later philosophers, you know, took this, these few remarks and kind of ran with it, taking the view that the way you do all of philosophy is through through language, that you can get rid of metaphysics completely and just talk about talking and so much for metaphysics. But metaphysics, you know, kind of refuse to go away. So then it, it sort of brings us down to the old concept of the logos, that uh, everything is the word of God in a way. Is that, would, would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. So in a way we're, we're, you know, I guess you could say we've gone super full circle. You know, in the beginning there was the word and the end there's, you know, some more words. all right so uh what is buddha's no self doctrine ah this takes us basically to the uh to the the end here now i decided to go you know away from the west a bit to the east and of course you know buddha was famous for um you know meditating and realizing that life is suffering and the way to end all this suffering is to achieve nirvana you know literally a state of no no wind and we have um in this you know, a brief sort of interesting story. We have a person, a Buddhist known as Nagasena, who has gone and spoken to a king because, you know, back in those days, kings were fairly wise. They realized that uh, one has to have a philosopher to have a fully, you know, functional, uh, you know, uh, government, which is, I think, something Obama should do. He should have like an official addition to like a secretary of state, perhaps a secretary of philosophy. I, I can think I, I could volunteer for that. <laughs> Although I'd have to wear a suit, but I, I guess I can manage. Anyway, so we have this, Nagasena goes to speak to the king, and in those days, kings were fairly philosophical, and so the, the king says, you know, how am I to address you? And Nagasena says, you may call me Nagasena, but it doesn't really matter what you call me, because it's merely a way of counting, a term, a convenient designation, because there is no self. And the king, being a fairly wise king, realizes the implications of this. If there is no self, who does things? Who meditates? Who commits sins? Who commits murder? Who tells the truth? Who does good deeds? Who rescues you know, the weak and punishes the wicked? And of course, the king is aware of the implications. 
if there is no self, there's no good or bad because there's no one to do good. There's no one to do bad. There's no merit or demerit because there's no one to do things that are worthy of praise or things that are worthy of condemnation. You cannot commit murder because there is no one to kill and there's no one to be killed. And so there is, you know, essentially nothing. And the king goes through and, and inquires of Nagasena, what is he? Is he his hair? Is he his nails? Is he the form? Is he the body, the sensation, the consciousness? And he goes through essentially all these predicates trying to find out who Nagasena is. And he realizes at the end that he has not discovered any Nagasena. That Nagasena is a mere empty sound. There is no Nagasena. Or um, another way to put it is there is no subject. There is no predicate. And so under Buddhism, we realize that the entire question of subject and predicate is a false question. There is no subject, there is no predicate, just as there is no spoon, which always leads to the classic question, if there is no spoon, how do I eat my pudding? But that's a subject for another another discussion, I suppose. Perhaps, <laughs> spon perhaps sponsored by Jello uh, with Bill Cosby as our special uh, third guest. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so then, you know, then you come to what's the point of anything if you you know where's the spoon to eat your pudding concept then what's the point of anything and and therefore none of us exist or none of anything exists to even be having this conversation and uh that's that right that's true so there was no there was no interviewer no interviewee there was no conversation there was no recording there was nothing I think we had all... that happen last time <laughs> it did it was that was actually the perfect sort of philosophical statement just pure nothingness <laughs> In your opinion, what is the importance of general grammar to the person, the listener, the entity that does or does not exist? Oh, um, well, as far as grammar goes, I think, you know, as a having you know, done so poorly on it myself in school, I can say from a practical standpoint, it's uh, very useful for, for clear communication, you know, to have, because I know it's from a you know, practical standpoint, grading papers and so forth that a good grasp of grammar is important for getting one's point across. And also, of course, is the, you know, some of the questions and problems you looked at, is there something, you know, contrary to like Hume and Nagasena, is there something metaphysical underlying our use of grammar? When we talk about subjects and predicates. Is there more going on there? And when I, when I remember when I was in grad school, some professors said, you know, there's no metaphysical implications whatsoever. And of course, others uh, disagreed. So I think grammar is practically useful for clear communication but also because it also raises those interesting metaph metaphysical questions about, you know, the nature of reality and does our language match the structure of reality? And does reality have any structure at all? Do you know who uh, Terrence McKenna was? Um, sounds familiar. <laughs> he he uh, made a statement once that just came to mind, which was, uh, and... Uh, it goes something like, if you know the, the words the world is made of, you can make of the world what you wish. It's a good quote. Because uh, yeah, basically, um, like as I tell my students in critical thinking, if you control you know, the language, if you're able to manipulate how people you know, speak of the world and how, what, what they think the words mean, that definitely affects how people perceive, perceive reality. And some may even argue that, in fact, uh, that, that is what creates reality, that we live in a reality of ideas and words as opposed to a reality of things. Going back to the logos, and what would you like people to take away from 
general grammar, the subject and predicate, uh, including what we went over last week. Uh, what would you like people to take away from all of that? Well, I think for the subject and predicate stuff, I think the sort of the main thing to take away is that beneath our like everyday use of subject and predicate, we should. It's interesting to consider that underneath that there lies all these very important and interesting issues about you know the nature of you know reality itself, the nature of the self, and it's it's so commonplace that that we you know in a way it's sort of lost in its you know familiarity. But beneath it is something of great interest. You know we talk about say being a person, and we do, we talk about you know people and so forth. But we really don't understand what that, that means, and there are all these very important implications. I mentioned, for example, uh, euthanasia, the notion, you know, abortion issues of, like, as we modify ourselves with genetic engineering technology, um, we're altering ourselves, and what is that actually changing? So I think it's important to think about, when you talk about our subjects and predicates, like being human, for example, that we realize that it's not just empty words, there's actually something very substantial there, something beneath the words um, you know, the reality of it, the ethics of it, and so forth. So I'd say sort of the first general thing is to realize the the importance and the implications of our, our use of, of that sort of language. And also, of course, perhaps less importantly, there's also just a general philosophical interest. It's kind of interesting to know that behind our sort of everyday use of subjects and predicates in our language that we do pretty much, you know, un, uncritically and unthinkingly, that there's all this history of metaphysics, you know, the notion of the forms and properties, the notions of substance and so forth, and to sort of know the the rich underlying history, um, you know, in philosophy and also in those areas that goes, you know, sort of behind our language. And so I'd say those are the two main things, you know, being aware of all the important stuff that underlies it and also being aware of the, the interesting or perhaps not so interesting history behind all that stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, Michael, you've given us a uh, fantastic little uh, mini-series here on grammar and rhetoric, which is uh, in large part uh, what the trivium is. Um, And then, uh, you know, from there on top of that, you go into the quadrivium. But I wanted to thank you so much for providing such a valuable tool to the audience out there, and uh, certainly a a large number of people have taken interest. Anyway, thank you so much for sharing all of this with everyone, and many, many people out there very much appreciate it. Oh, thanks for the opportunity to talk, because one thing we philosophers like to do is is talk. And fortunately, I like the case of Socrates, I don't have to worry about uh, being put to death for this, at least not now. So maybe if it gets out there enough, maybe that will happen. Well, you know, with the Internet, that could happen sooner than later. True. Okay, you have to keep an eye out for that hemlock. If I get like a, if I get like a mysterious package with like hemlock cola, I'll know not to drink it. All right. Well, you know, if uh, you just drink small amounts of it, it's actually uh, euphoric. It's uh, just when you increase the dosage that it becomes uh, deadly. Oh, really? I didn't, didn't know that. So Socrates' problem is not that he drank, but that he drank too much. Well, I mean, he was forced to drink too much, but uh, it's known uh, recently Dr. David Hillman has published some uh, ancient uh, Greek texts that uh, reveal that hemlock was used as an inebriant in in sort of regular use. Hmm, Interesting. So hemlock's kind of like philosophy. You know, just a little is interesting and fun, and too much will kill you. Exactly. 